morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we'll be reading from verses 50 to 56. Matthew chapter 27, 50 through 56. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and they heard the, and, and the things that, that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women who were looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him, among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning that we can come together and worship you. Thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing and to think about the fact that we have a hope because he lives. Father, thank you for the Christmas songs. I pray now as we focus in on your word that your spirit would convict us of those areas that need to be changed. Father, I pray that our our will will be changed and that we will uh, desire to be more like Christ and less like ourselves. Father, we know that it is your command that we be holy as you are holy. And I pray that this text will serve for that purpose, to glorify you and be for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. You know, usually we, uh, we, we don't think very much about verbal tenses. And uh, today's uh, sermon is the, the importance of verbal tenses. I, I was going to uh, also put there the importance of verbal tenses in our Christological confessions, but that seemed like it was so long and it almost seemed like it was a Puritan type uh, title, and so I decided to shorten it down. But verbal tenses, we, we don't tend to think very much about verbal tenses. We, we think about ideas and the ideas that we're trying to communicate and our mind automatically chooses certain verbs to go with the idea that we're trying to communicate. That's just how we, we work. But there's a difference between uh, I loved him, I love him, or uh, I will love him, right? You know, you're walking with your spouse, with your wife, and, and she sees her uh, ex-boyfriend, ex-whatever, and says, um, I love him. Well, that, that's, that's kind of alarming, right? Uh, you would hope that that would have been a past tense, you know? Uh, I loved him. Or it, she looks at you in your eyes and she says, um, I will love you. You don't love me now? You know, like, what, what does that mean? Ver, verbal tenses are, are important, and, and, and to use them correctly uh, helps communicate. Now, communication has a force, uh, or, or words, uh, and it has a stronger force when we use the correct tenses and when we have uh, the right actions that go along with those words. 
So, for example, to use the correct tenses, but to have uh, to be devoid of action really uh, lets the words kind of drop. Anyone that has been in a relationship in some fashion with an addict knows what I'm talking about. Uh, the best intentions comes out of an addict's mouth. Uh, I promise to be there at the baseball game to watch you. I promise to, 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 to buy you the Christmas present. I promise this, and there's the best intentions of the world, but whatever that person's addicted to uh, ends up winning. Uh, they're not there for the baseball game. They're not there to buy the present. The money got spent on something else, whatever the addiction is. So words are important that you say the correct tenses, but also the, the actions that go along with it have to, go have to correspond with, with the words that we're saying. And of course, the person, the person that um, uh, their lifestyle needs to go along with what, and the combination of those three things, Aristotle's uh, communication, his, his rhetoric, his idea of rhetoric, that it involved the words and, and the actions and the person, they all go hand in hand to have a force in what it communicates. Now, as we've been looking at this text, where, where we're at is that the religious leaders have heard Jesus' teaching. Uh, they've, they've heard what he's had to say. They've, they've misconstrued some of the stuff to be able to accuse him, but they've heard what he said. They've, they've seen his actions. They, they've seen how he's healed people, and they've, they've attributed it to uh, some demon or, or something else like that. And uh, they have seen his lifestyle. They've seen that it's not like he's out there trying to get rich. He's not out there trying to get funds for himself. He's building this huge mansion on earth and saying, you know, give some more money in faith so we can build the kingdom of heaven right here on earth right now. And, and the kingdom of heaven is just his house, you know. Uh, he hasn't been doing that. In fact, he says, you know, the foxes have their homes, birds have their nests, and the Son of Man doesn't have where to lay down. So they've been able to see him, but they, they've concluded that even though they've heard and seen all this stuff, they've said that this is not the Son of Man that Daniel 7, 13 through 14 has presented. They, they've rejected him. And in rejecting him, they've, uh, they've pushed Pilate, even though Pilate didn't see anything the matter with him. They, they, he, he didn't find any reason to have him crucified. They pushed to have him crucified and went along with that. And they also had an influence on the people because the people at the beginning of the week were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But now uh, they are saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The soldiers, they, they mocked him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They gave him a mock scepter. They bowed before him. And then they insulted him, spat on him, hit him. So... This is the context. Jesus is on the cross. He has given up his spirit. And what we're going to be looking at today is that Christians must confess a present belief in their Lord and Savior by our words and actions. That, that's what we're going to be looking at today, that Christians must confess a present belief. Now, I know that for the majority of us, we have gotten saved at some time in the past. It was some time a while ago that uh, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But I hope that today it's not just some type of past experience, something that happened way long time ago, but there is a present reality in your confession, that there is a present relationship with your Lord and Savior. 
and that that corresponds both by words and it corresponds by action. It doesn't really work if we're just going to say a bunch of words and there's not going to be any actions. As we look at this, the first thing that we're going to look at is that Christ's death caused a shocking impact. Christ's death caused a shocking impact. Now we see that in, in verse 51. It says, and behold, uh, which is like, look at this, the veil of the temple was torn. The temple was about in the inside, about uh, 30 feet tall, and it would have had uh, two, the two big curtains. Uh, some, some think that the curtains could have been even as thick as four inches. Can you imagine a curtain that thick? And there was one that would have been at the doorway so that you would not look into the holy place. And then there was another one that uh, put a barrier between the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, we don't know exactly which of these curtains uh, was the one that ripped. Some would argue that uh, since maybe some people saw it, maybe it was the one out by the door that separated the courtyard from the holy place. And then others make an argument that it was uh, actually the one from the, the holy to the holy of holies. That one was ripped. It was, it was torn in two. And, and it's interesting. So it's about maybe 30 feet tall, and then it's, it's ripped from top to bottom. It's a very way, interesting way to, to tear this thing. And not only did it, uh, the, the veil was torn, but the earth shook. Christ's uh, death caused a shocking impact. The earth shook. It, it, it uh, was uh, shaking, shaking violently. It caused a commotion to agitate. And it says that the rocks, the rocks were split. The rocks were split. I, I've never really been in an earthquake. Not that I've noticed. Um, uh, I, I haven't really felt that. I, we went to Costa Rica for language school. And uh, the first thing they did before they introduced the schedule, before they talked about uh, the classes, before they did anything, they had this whole seminar on uh, what to do in the case of an earthquake. That was the first thing. You're getting there, and I was like, I didn't realize we had there was that many earthquakes. But uh, they, they went through this whole training thing of what to do in the case of an earthquake. And by God's grace, the, the two and a half months, three months that we were there, we didn't have a single earthquake. Uh, there was a, uh, an earthquake uh, that, was, that happened in 1997 in the state of Sucre in Venezuela, around the area of Casanay and Blanco Lugar. It was a 7.0, and uh, it caused several deaths. Uh, around 70-some-odd people died. Uh, it, it was interesting because our church sent uh, some medical supplies, sent clothing, sent food up to that area. And as they were driving up, as they got closer and closer to where the earthquake happened, the, the roads, there was big cracks in the roads. In fact, it was easier to go off the road and drive on the dirt than it was on the road because of how the road was just destroyed. There was buildings that had collapsed caused by this. You, you can imagine. Now, the interesting thing about this is as you look at that word that the rocks were split and the word uh, about the veil of the temple was torn, it's actually the same Greek word, uh, even though it's gotten translated differently. It, it's the same, so 
uh, one informs the other about the violence that was involved in the tearing of the veil. So it wasn't like the veil just kind of uh, unraveled or it just kind of, you know, gently went, you know, fell apart or something like that. But rather, just as these rocks were split by this earthquake, so the veil was torn. It's a violent action that was happening. It wasn't just like something just magically fell apart, you know, like that. It, 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 there's a violent action that's involved in this. And not only was that torn apart, uh, but the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, this is an interesting uh, event that happened that only Matthew records. Uh, and it leaves us with a lot of questions. Um, which saints? How far back? Where these people are. We're talking about like Abraham comes out, or we're talking about somebody that maybe died a couple weeks earlier and they come out. Uh, it, it leaves us with a lot of questions like what happened uh, afterwards? Like, did they live on several more years and then pass away? Or when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, these individuals went up also? It says that uh, they, they went into the holy city and many people saw them. What do they do? I mean, can you imagine the scene? They're drinking your coffee on the porch in the, in the morning, and there comes Uncle Bill just walking up. And you're like, dude, like buried you six months ago. What are you doing here? He's like, Jesus rose me. Really? I mean, it, it, it brings a lot of questions, and historical individuals want to try to decide to see if they can answer all those questions. But that's not the purpose why that verse is there. It's not to satisfy our curiosities and to answer all those questions, but rather, uh, based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, others are raised as well. And its purpose is to give a hope that just as Christ raised these individuals, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will also be raised. That, that's the point of the text. It gives a hope to those who are believing, those who have trusted. There are times in our life that things get really ugly. A sickness. We weren't, we weren't anticipating it. Or someone that we love is, is sick, and we didn't think that they would get the sickness. And, and we wonder, is there any hope? But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is hope. There's these individuals who have been resurrected. And they appear to individuals. Now verse 54, it says, Now the centurion and those who are with him, they're keeping guard over Jesus. They're watching to make sure that Jesus and the two thieves, they, that they are put to death properly. Matthew uses an interesting verb to describe their reaction to the earthquake because he says that they saw the earthquake. And that's a very interesting way of, of communicating uh, the earthquake because usually I would assume you would feel an earthquake or maybe you would hear the rumble of an earthquake. But here they, they see the effect. It's such a violent effect that they see it. Now, when we look at earthquakes and, and used in the Word of God, uh, they have 
different meanings per se. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, 11 through 12, you remember the situation where Elijah is running, running for his life, he's scared. And he ends up going into this cave and, and God decides to manifest in different ways. And, and, and the first way is that this, uh, this wind comes. I mean, it's a strong wind. So strong that it's pushing boulders, flooding boulders, uh, strong wind. Was God in the wind? He was not in the wind. And then he sent uh, an earthquake. And he's inside this cave, and, and the mountain, the whole mountain is shaking. Was God in the earthquake? No. Then comes a fire, and it burned, this burning fire. And God was not in the fire either. And finally there comes this still, gentle breeze, this small voice. And God was there. He, he was in control of the wind, of the earthquake, and of the fire. But he decided to reveal himself this way. So earthquakes are in his control. Earthquakes were also used to punish individuals. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 6. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 6, it says, For the Lord of hosts, uh, of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise. He uses earthquakes to punish individuals. Amos chapter 1, verse 1, it says that this prophecy came to Amos two years before uh, the earthquake. And it seems that even though he gave the prophecy out to Israel, uh, they, they heard it, but they didn't repent because Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 14, 5 says that the earthquake happened. So here God used an earthquake to judge. He sent a message, repent. They didn't repent. God sent uh, an earthquake for judgment. So here is this earthquake that happens. And the reaction of the centurions and those who are keeping guard is that uh, it says that they, they saw the earthquake and these things that were happening. Now what things were happening? Well, it got dark. Uh, there Jesus died. He cried out with a loud voice. There's this earthquake. I don't think it would have included seeing the, peop seeing the tombs open up because they were at Golgotha, not at the cemetery. Uh, I don't think it would have included uh, seeing the at the temple because they're at Golgotha. They're not at the temple. They're outside of the city. I mean, they could have been watching CNN on their smartphone and said, look at that, the veil. But I doubt that that's what happened. So the things that they're seeing, the things that are happening is this earthquake and the, the, how it's so dark, and uh, they decide to say something. They say, truly, truly is, a, uh, is something that corresponds to reality. If I were to say, uh, it, by the, right behind the basketball goal, a meter down, there is a treasure. And uh, you guys get up and you go and you start digging a meter down. If you were to find a treasure, you would say that that corresponded to reality. What I said corresponded to reality. I made a truth statement. And that's what they're about to say is that this is a truth statement. This is something that corresponds to reality. And the way it's formed is that it says truly God's son, this was God's son. If we read it in the New American Standard, it says, truly this was the Son of God. Was. 
Not is, not will be, but was. There's a couple different ways to express past tense action in, in Greek. There is a way to express a past tense action that happened at one specific point. Uh, he was born, right? Uh, labor can go on for hours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, the person is born. That happens at a certain point in history. That happened. But then there are some things that can happen over a course of time, but still in the past. Uh, when he died, yeah, he, he was born Italian, but when he died, he, he was American. So there was a time period in the past when that person went from being Italian to an American. How long was he an American citizen? Who knows? But it's something, it's an event that occurred in the, in the, in the past. That word that he was the Son of God is that idea, is that it covers a time frame. How long? It doesn't say how long. But it's a time frame in the past. He was the Son of God. What a sad confession. Now, some interpreters go all crazy about this, and they love it. They think this is a Gentile making a confession about God, but it's not a very good confession. It's a past tense action. And, and furthermore, the Romans, they accepted Caesar as being a son of God. They, they didn't see that it was a problem. They thought that there were many sons of God. That these people would come and they would die and then another son of God would come. And so the fact that they were confessing this really isn't that extraordinary. And furthermore, they're confessing something that's a past tense action, something that happened in the past, but who knows if he is one right now? Think about that. Many times that's what our confession of faith is. It's something past tense, something that was back then, but not a reality for us now. It's not a reality that we live. Now, when we look at this, I want to apply two, two different points about this. Christ's death caused a shocking impact. And the first point is that the veil is torn. Now, how are we supposed to interpret that the veil was torn? There's two different ways to interpret that the veil was torn, and it, uh, it uses two different forms of interpretation. Now, the first way is to understand that the veil was torn as a sign of judgment, a sign of judgment. In Matthew chapter 24, you remember in Matthew chapter 24, the, uh, the disciple that says verse 1 and verse 2, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to a point out of the temple buildings to him and said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone uh, here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Uh, here Jesus is prophesying that there's going to be a judgment that will happen. They're trying to show him the temple. Look at this wonderful building. And Jesus says, <laughs> you think that's great? It's all going to be torn down. Something's going to happen. Uh, how should we understand the fact that the veil was torn? Well, contextually, the best interpretation contextually would be that of judgment. God is starting a judgment that will be completed in the year 70 when Roman comes and destroys the temple, puts it all down. If you think about the fact that Israel was supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, Isaiah 49, verse 6, both of those say that uh, Israel, their servant, was supposed to be a light, 
and now they are crucifying Christ, there's a judgment. In fact, as we will move forward in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, we'll see that it's the church that goes forth and disciples individuals. So it's a judgment. Now some will say, I don't know about this judgment thing. I've always heard another way of understanding it, and that's a way of blessing. Of blessing. And the way they see this is from Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and 16. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and 16, Jesus is called our high priest. And because of Jesus, we have now access to the Father. We have access into his throne room. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, there was a separation between in the tabernacle between the holy place and the holy of holies. That place has been uh, abolished. Now we have access to the Father. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22, we have access into the holy of holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that's Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22, we have access. And so some see, uh, because of the author of Hebrews, how they have applied this, they say, no, this is just blessing. This is just a blessing. I, I think it would be better to interpret this ripping of the veil as, uh, because it's put in this context of just as the stones are being split, this violent action, as a judgment that gets finally fulfilled in the year 70. But there are applications of this judgment. There are certain benefits, and part of that benefit is a blessing a blessing to us, that we can now access the Father. We don't have to find priests. We don't have to find intermediary. We don't have to talk to anybody else. We can go straight to the Father. Now, we see that this impact, Christ's death had a, a shocking impact. It had an impact on the veil. It had an impact on the ground. It had an impact on the stones. It had an impact on the people, the saints who were dead and they were raised. It had an impact on scaring the soldiers. But this morning I wonder, does Christ's death have an impact on you? Does, Christ, uh, does Christ's death impact you? So I'm not talking about the world, the earth, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm getting very personal. Is your relationship with God something only of the past? Yeah, when I was a baby, I got baptized. Great. Yeah, when I was a little kid, I, I repeated some words after a pastor. Great. Is that the totality of your relationship with God? Some past thing? It happened back then. It has no impact on me now. Or is it, is it a present tense? Where, where there's a, a, a confession now. Back then, I received Christ as my Savior, but I'm still believing now. I'm still practicing now. I was four years old when I received Christ as my Savior, but it's not just because of that. Right now, I believe. Does Christ's death have an impact on you? A present reality. Not just a past tense thing. Or are you like the soldiers who says this was the Son of God? The second point I want to make is that Christ's death should bring uh, us near to him. Christ's death should bring us near to him. Verses 55 through verse 56. If we were to look at sermon audio, 
or any other sermon website, I would probably say that the majority of modern sermons take these two verses in a very positive light. And I am in no way trying to diminish anything, uh, but I, I think that it's very careful, uh, we need to very carefully look at what the text is saying to us. So uh, we sometimes we'll hear some things that are said, and uh, it's best to kind of let the text inform us. As we're looking at this text, verse 55 has two participles that modify, that, that talk about the main verb, which is that many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed, that's our main verb of this, of this sentence, they, they followed Jesus. The women, they were following Jesus. The, the word following is the same verb used for the disciples when they, when they left their nets and they followed after him. They, they went after. It's, it's the process of a disciple. It's the one who goes after the rabbi. They are following. So right now, this is fantastic. Here you have a group of women, and they are following him. Not only are they following him, but these ladies have been ministering. So there's one of our participles. It's describing the actions, what they're doing, they're ministering. I'm sure that they have followed him down from Galilee, crossed uh, over there at Jericho, uh, and went up. I'm sure they were eyewitnesses of when Jesus healed the blind man there at Jericho. I'm sure they were witnesses of of the triumphal entry right, and the healings and so forth. And then later on as we read that they'll be the same ladies that are there helping with preparing Jesus' body. Uh, and that's fantastic. But, but, it says, verse 55, many women were there looking on from a distance. There was a space in between. And the word kind of carries a, a, a greater distance than a shorter distance. As in, uh, there is a space between them. Now, if we think about this, we, say, we might think categorically that the ladies here are a lot better off than, than the disciples. Because we would say, look, um, at least the ladies are right there. They're looking at Jesus at a distance. But, but where are the disciples? Where are they at? We don't even know where they're at. They're off somewhere. Who knows? And so we might categorically think, well, these ladies are better off than the disciples. And, and there would be an error there because we could then take this same method of thinking and apply it to us. We might say, well, I'm here at church today. I didn't see any movement in the houses of my neighbors. And when I get back, they're already there. So I'm going to guess that unless their church service ended really early, that they didn't go to church. And categorically, I might think, I am here, and they're not, so therefore, I am better than them. But did Jesus say, if you want to be my disciple, come from a distance and watch? Was that what he said? No, the invitation was to take up your cross and to follow him. 
See, categorically, I might be coming here year after year after year, but there is no change in my temperament. I still yell at my wife, and I still yell at the kids, and I still kick the cat. I come year after year after year, but there's still no change in the fact of, of what I'm looking on the Internet, of what I'm consuming, I'm drinking, what I'm injecting into myself. The, the people that I call to share a prayer request about, about Brother Chris, let me tell you what I saw him doing. Gossiping. There's no change, but I think categorically I'm better than my neighbor, even though year after year there's not one step forward towards holiness. The invitation is not come at a distance and watch. It's come and take your cross and follow after me. There's a second point of application here is that ministry is incarnational. I know that companies are being managed remotely. I, I know that. I know they can do that. CEOs are off somewhere else, and they can do that. I know that education can happen at a distance. I've taken advantage of that. I, I get that. Uh, I've heard that counseling, uh, counseling psychiatrists have been meeting through Zoom, and I know that even now there are probably some people watching our church service online. I get that. There's, I'm sure, situations that makes it impossible for them to come. But ministry is incarnational. The illustration of the church is a pastor and a flock. And, and, and you can't take care of a flock at a distance. A, a shepherd just can't do that. He, he's not managing sheep. Discipleship involves a communication of a truth, but it's also modeled. Jesus didn't send home worksheets with the disciples. He was with them. They saw how he interacted with individuals. He saw, they, they saw his temperament. They saw how, how he acted. It's incarnational. It's not just go do this worksheet, call me up later and see how it went. Counseling, I know that counseling can be done at the phone, but at some point you have to put on the protective gear and go into that hospital room. And you got to hold that person's hand. A Zoom call just doesn't do it. Or, or you got to talk with that loved one. And, and, and just a phone call and a text just isn't going to cut it. Ministry is incarnational. And, and I get that church, some watch it, but it's not how the body grows. It's not something to be watched. It's something to be lived. It's where we glorify the Father and edify one another and encourage and exhort. And then we go out and, and reach the lost. It's not a football game. It's a body that comes together and ministers to one another. And I, I get that they're there. and I, I applaud them. But don't think for a moment categorically one's better than the other because the invitation that Jesus did was to take up the cross and follow him, to go after him. As we look at this, Christians must confess a present belief in the Lord and Savior by words and actions. Verbal tenses are important. You mess up a verbal tense when you're saying something sweet to your wife, boy, it's going to mess it up but it's also important in our confessions of what we say about Christ. 
And then it goes hand in hand with our action because it really doesn't matter if you say all the right words, but you're not living it. If there's not a transformation that is happening. This year I was this angry, and this year I'm a little bit less angry, and this year I'm a little bit less angry. This year I used to be so prideful, and now I'm a little bit less prideful. A transformation that happens. goes with the words and with the action, transforms the person. Now the question is, what verbal tense would describe your relationship with God? Maybe you say, I, I don't have a relationship with God. Today, you can be saved. Maybe you would say, my verbal tenses is all past tense. I haven't been walking with the Lord in a long time. Today can be the day of changing that. For those of, of you who have been walking with the Lord, praise the Lord. Keep on doing it and encourage others. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. I, I pray as we look at this and we consider the verbal tense that they confess that Christ was, I pray that that won't be us, but that we will have a present relationship with you through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray.